So let me introduce my friend Dawn. Dawn is the leader of an organization that I am proud to be part of called Leadership Seminal. And a few months ago, Dawn and I were sitting in our office and we were charged to put together a leadership summit. Uh, with some guest speakers to kind of raise the, the water level of leadership in our county. And uh, Dawn is really excited. She said, I have just heard this lady who is so inspiring, so incredible, we've got to have her in the summit. And when Dawn says that, you know something pretty special is going on. So I think over the next couple of weeks, we moved the whole summit date, everything to accommodate Michelle. And we were so glad that we did. Uh, Michelle came and told us half of her story about how for many years uh, she served in the CIA with her husband, uh, Joseph. She broke through all kinds of glass ceilings. And as you can imagine, being in some of the most dangerous parts of the world, um, she experienced some incredible things. What I have since learned about Michelle and Joseph, is that their motivation for doing what they did was not just to serve and protect our country, which is one of the most noble motives, but they did it because they were serving God. And so at the summit, they only shared the first half of their story, which was their work in the CIA. What I find most uh, exciting is the second half of the story, where they've been using those unique skills to rescue some of the most vulnerable, persecuted people on the planet. So I don't want to tell you their story because that's what uh, they're here to do. Uh, Michelle has been traveling the country recently. She's uh, spoken to Google a few weeks ago and the State Department. You know you've really made it when they sell your books at Costco and you can see them there. But now she is in a place that has potentially more uh, impact than Google or the State Department, the church. And uh, we're thrilled that you're here. Would you welcome Joseph and Michelle aside? So thank you, Pastor, for that. And um, I, I really, I think it was very uh, special that um, to be here today. Um, in the very beginning of the service, you mentioned today was the day of Pentecost. And, um, you know, in Arabic, Pentecost means Hamsin. Uh, and um, I um, uh, was reminded of a story uh, when I was talking to a pastor earlier about my first tour uh, with the CIA. And um, I was in a place uh, in Africa. And... Um, it, you know, they have these storms that come once a year about this time of the year that in Arabic they call Hamasin. So these winds, they come from the south to the north. They go all the way from Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt. And it is one of the most horrifying things that you'll ever see in real life. It's one of those like National Geographic magazine photos where you look above you, the sky is clear. <laughs> but then you're seeing a wall of sand coming towards you. And as I was talking to people in Sudan, they were like, yes, this is a very, very dangerous part of the year when we see the Hamasin, we tie down our cows because uh, you never know. I mean, uh, those winds are pretty strong. So uh, the moral of this is tie down your cows. Um, 
but what happened in uh, in uh, in um, you know uh, today? What makes it special is um, Christ was speaking to his disciples and said, "But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." And this is our Jerusalem. We are from Florida. And Michelle and I are here to tell you our story. And we share this with you in the spirit of testifying of what God has done. So as you hear these stories, as you hear our testimony, we want you to, to hear it um, because we're not anything special. We are two very simple people, but God has chosen to do some incredible things that I know God has started doing in some of your lives. So we want this to serve as an inspiration to you and to motivate you about what God can do when you um, um, are obedient um, to what God has for you. So speaking of the Middle East, I want to start my story from Egypt. That's where I'm from. But my story in Egypt started by also somebody from Florida. In 1911, a young lady by the name of Lillian Trasher was engaged to be married and um, went and attended a revival uh, uh, service and she felt that God is calling her to go to Africa. She tells her fiance, God is calling me to go to Africa, specifically Egypt. He said, God is not calling me to go to Africa. Do you know how hard it is to get to Africa in 1911, 1910? No flights. You got to take a boat. Takes you at least three months to get there, which is what she did. She arrived in Egypt, stayed with um, uh, Presbyterian missionaries. 22 years old. She is 22 years old. Nine. They said, you're crazy. Well, you're a single American woman. You're here in, in Egypt. You should not be doing this. You really should go back home. She didn't know what exactly God has in store for her. As she's walking the streets of an upper, uh, in a city in upper Egypt, which means in the south, she hears this woman that seemed like she, she was in pain, an Egyptian woman on the sidewalk. She went to tend to her, and the woman gave her a thing that was wrapped and it was a baby, and the woman died. So Lillian took this. What do I do? God, what is this? This baby was in really bad shape. She was incredibly diseased. She was about 10 months old and looked like a newborn. So she was very malnourished, and she had never been washed. She took her back to the mission house, and the missionary said, the baby cries. You can't have him here. You got to leave. So Lillian left. <laughs> she had seven cents to her name. That was what it cost to rent her first apartment, one bedroom apartment, a room basically. And, 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 and uh, she paid seven cents and she prayed to God, God, would you give me, maybe this, this, I take this as a sign, would you give me 12 children off the streets of Egypt that I could take care of and give hope to? This, is, this will be my mission. This is, I'll give my life for this. And Lillian writes in her book, Letters from Lillian, years later, God did answer her prayer. People started hearing about this crazy American woman that came from Jacksonville and started bringing in children, but bringing in donations. And at one point, she had 1,200 children, not 12. Fast forward, why do I tell you the story? Because um, many of these uh, 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 children 
became teachers, preachers. In fact, half of the pastors in Egypt are graduates of the orphanage. And, and, and many have, have gone to many parts of the world. And two of the people that were raised by Lillian Trasher were my mom and my dad. So um, Egypt was a special place for us. But we, uh, we, we moved on, and there's, a, there's another scripture that, uh, that, uh, that reminds of a great story that, uh, that could be applicable to, uh, to many here. How many of you here have ever, ever been rejected? How many of you were turned down for a job or opportunity, something you thought that you deserved, or something? <laughs> exactly. Check, check, check. So... I grew up in Egypt, and I thought, okay, this is this is this is great. Uh, you know, my family, uh, my parents uh, grew up. Not only were they educated, they became missionaries in Lebanon and Beirut, where I was born. Uh, then we went back to Egypt after the civil war, and they were asked to direct, be the directors of the orphanage after Lillian Trasher passed away. And then the hammer comes down when I was kicked out of university in Cairo, was not allowed to enter because, uh, uh, and, and if you've traveled in that part of the world, you know that your name is a giveaway whether you're a Christian or you're a Muslim. And at that point, I had a very uh, nasty person who said, Joseph George Assad, you're like very Christian name. If you don't get it by now, when are you all gonna understand that you're not welcome here? I got kicked out of university, I was rejected and about 10 days after that rejection, I got a, um, and I'm abbreviating the story here on purpose. I got a um, letter from Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach, Florida, offering me a full tuition scholarship to come to America. Had it not been for that rejection, had it not been for that closed door, which, by the way, when it happens, you're very angry. <laughs> God, why did you do this? It reminded me of a story uh, in the Bible. We know about Joseph in the Bible. When his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites to become a slave in Egypt. So while Joseph is in the pit, he's, he's probably thinking, God, why? What did I do to deserve this? So sometimes your rejection, sometimes when you're going through that, we don't know what God has in store. I would not have been able to come to the United States and get my education and become a counterterrorism officer with the Central Intelligence Agency had it not been for that rejection. But I'm not the only one. <laughs> um, I am from Central Florida. I grew up in Mount Dora. Anybody know where Mount Dora is? All right. I graduated from Tiberius High School. And a few months before I graduated, the pastor's son uh, said, I need to introduce you to someone, because I used to have these gatherings after football games at my house, a little Bible study and a little fun. And he's like, can I bring this guy that our church has helped sponsor to bring to the United States from Egypt? And I said, of course. And so that night, I was 17, Joseph was 19, we met in Central Florida, in Tavares. <laughs> okay, I do have to say this, sorry, sorry Pastor, but you know, she, she, she was a, um, a cheerleader and it was the first time when I've, since I've been to America that I've seen cheerleaders. So I naturally said, praise the Lord. 
This was meant to be. <laughs> Joseph went <from> church. <laughs> uh, so um, I really, I didn't even know Egypt was a real country. That's how much I knew about the world. And I was like, wow, you're, you're, there was an, actually a modern state called Egypt. And um, Joseph then put together a mission trip to take students from the university he had just come to and take him to his parents' orphanage to work for a month. And I went on that mission trip. And it changed the course of my life. So a little simple kid from Central Florida suddenly thrust into this very foreign culture and very foreign environment, and I was fascinated by it. And I didn't understand it, but I had this very intuitive pull to learn the Middle East, to study this region, to understand this culture or these cultures in the Middle East. And so I then used this as an opportunity to just get abroad as often as possible. So I also went down to the same university Joseph was attending, Palm Beach Atlantic in West Palm Beach, Florida. And uh, we, we went on mission trips together. I did a study abroad program in Cairo for a semester. And I didn't, I committed my life to Christ as a really little kid. We're talking like four years old. Does anybody have any little kids? Okay. What kind of four-year-old know? Well, I don't know, but I always loved God. Like for whatever reason, since four, I loved God. And I grew up just saying, Lord, whatever it is you want to do with my life, I'm totally open to that. And I didn't place any limitations on my commitment to him. I literally was very, whatever you want. And so I didn't know exactly what he wanted, but I just kind of followed these, these, this like uh, intuitive pull to study the Middle East. And we ended up getting married, and we moved to Washington, D.C., and we're just trying to find our path in the world. And for some reason, my path was particularly hard. My gosh, I could not get a job. And it was really embarrassing because I had friends who were graduates who were in D.C. also, and they were on Capitol Hill, they were working for congressmen and senators, and they were doing these really amazing things, and I literally could barely get a secretarial job, which was nothing wrong with secretarial job, but I certainly didn't spend four years studying, didn't require a college education. And Joseph and I, I'm like, where, what is God doing with our life? And why am I so confused about what I'm supposed to, what? What is my path? Still had no idea. I decided to go to Georgetown University and get a master's degree in Arab studies. And my parents, living in Apopka here, Michelle, what in the world are you going to do with an Arab studies degree? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> she, but, married, she married the guy from the Middle East, so she needed to get a master's degree on that. <laughs> Just. Oh, yeah, I needed a degree for that, yes. <laughs> but in any case, so I kept following this. Okay, God didn't give me any spe specific direction. I literally had like one step I could take literally at a time, not knowing where it was taking me. And then, weirdly enough... CIA recruits out of Georgetown University. So I got recruited into the CIA as an analyst. And I was so excited that finally, everything was finally coming together. I got a job. <laughs> I can put food on the table. So exciting. 
a few day, a couple weeks before I was supposed to start that analyst job, I got this letter in the mail, and the CIA had just taken the job back from me. With no explanation, they kind of actually made it sound like I had done something to jeopardize this position, and it was no longer available to me. Joseph probably remembers, I literally fell on the ground, and I started crying, and like, what just happened? For some of, you know, some people, they decide what they want to be, they go to college, they study, and then they get right into their, into their job, and you think, man, why can't I be like that? Why is my path seem to be so much more difficult than everyone else's? Man, after I got a master's degree, after this job was taken away from me, I couldn't even get the secretarial position. I went backwards. I was taking temp jobs. So Joseph and I could <laughs> eat. Both of us were like scraping it, you know, at that time. Then a friend of ours said, there's this other side of the CIA. It's the operation side. It's the cool spy stuff. We need to get into the CIA in this other side. So we started going through this process. Joseph ended up getting in first because I couldn't reapply to the agency for a full year. So Joseph went through this long process polygraph, background investigation. Um, I mean, they had fun with my security clearance. My last name is Assad. <laughs> 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 and Joseph started training, and he was in the middle of surveillance training. you got to make sure you're not going to lead people to your clandestine meeting and get your source or yourself killed. So he was in the middle of clan, uh, sur surveillance training, and I had just been told that I was going to start training in the next class of CIA recruits, which was going to be January 2002. And on that day, the planes hit the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and one flew into the field in Pennsylvania. And suddenly, everything in our life made sense. All the confusion, all the uncertainty had brought us to this point in time where a young man who is from Upper Egypt, where the roots of Al-Qaeda's ideology come from, native speaker of Arabic, and a little girl from Central Florida who had a passion to understand the Middle East, were now pre-positioned for the war on terror. Being a CIA officer requires you to deal with a lot of unsavory characters. These were not the Boy Scouts. And... Many of you read the news, you follow what's happening in the Middle East, and you hear the ter terms from Al-Qaeda to ISIS to other things, and people ask us all the time, well, where does this come from? Where does all this hate come from, and how is this going to end? And there's a lot of uncertainty. I have to tell you that being a believer and being a Christian and being in the middle of places like Iraq and other war zones that we can't talk about. So sorry, we're not picking on Iraq. It's the only uh, country that the CIA uh, cleared us to say where we, where we worked. But we lived in many other places in that region. You absolutely, as a believer, you see it so in your face that this is a spiritual battle. You see the spiritual aspects of this. I was talking to a JSOC commander who, who every day he would send the special forces guys and goes and, you know, targets Al-Qaeda cell here or, uh, you know, a certain militia group here. And he looked at me one day. He goes, you know, I, I am a believer and I need to talk to you. He said, we're not going to bomb our way out of this, are we? So 
to see that firsthand as Christians and to understand and to try to help our colleagues understand what we're up against, that this is not just flesh or blood. We are fighting something that is bigger, this ideology and, 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 and other spiritual aspects of this. It helped us understand how to do our job. I mean, I'll never forget one of, one of, the, uh, one of the terrorists um, that came and um, uh, he worked for ISIS, but he was uh, trying to pass himself off uh, as a convert to Christianity. And um, um, we, we had a little bit of fun with that guy because uh, we knew exactly that he was not a convert because there are certain things that you can see. Um, so um, we, we decided, you know, we, we're the only two people in the CIA that can get away with this. And I started talking to the guy and said, so you're a convert, really? Uh, tell me more about, about, about your faith. And, um, and it was a mixture between the Quran and the Bible. <laughs> and I couldn't keep it straight. And then, um, and then I decided to take it a step further because you could start seeing that he gets uncomfortable. And his eyes are glazed over, and there's something very dark, very evil in him. And I started saying, so when I say the blood of Jesus saves you, how, does your, how do you react? He's like, whoa, what blood? <laughs> I had fun with him. So who say you can't be a CIA officer and not have fun? But uh, it, it, it certainly is our faith in Christ is what sustained us. For 10 years, back-to-back -to -back tours, and not just in the war and terror, but in helping our country better understand that this is not just about, you know, targets that we need to take out, that there's a lot more at stake here. So after 10 years of working weekends and holidays and being undercover and being far away from our family and our friends, we felt God was leading us out. And here we go again with the big uncertainty of why. What is he doing with us? What's our next part of this path? Because when you leave the CIA, it is a very scary thing. You have no resume. You can't tell people what you just did for the past 10 years. <laughs> Could you, would you give me a job? What have you done? I can't tell you. <laughs> what are you good at? I'm not really sure. <laughs> no. Outside of the CIA, I don't really don't know what I'm worth. But yet we knew God was calling us. Okay. But then we also had this fear because we'd become adrenaline junkies could we ever find anything that gave us such meaning again? Could we ever experience something that gave us such purpose? But we had to trust God yet once again with the unknown. Do I feel comfortable putting my life into God's hands when I have cannot see what's next? And we decided once again to do that. So we left the agency, we worked out of the Emirates for about four years, and then we came home back to Central Florida. And we were running our own security consulting firm all those years in the UAE. And then, again, try, felt like it was just a placeholder. Like, it was interesting. It was good work. It sustained us. It was, um, but, you know, it just didn't have that, that, that purpose. But we felt that there was something around the corner. And, in fact, uh, it was pretty big. So I get a phone call um, from a former colleague in Washington uh, I did human rights work before the CIA. I know it's hard to believe. Um, and said, we've been looking for you. I need you to talk to a good friend of mine. His name is Mark Burnett. If you watch TV, like we do, you watch Shark Tank and Survivor and other shows, this is the producer, Mark Burnett, 
of these shows. He's the executive producer. He gets on the phone and uh, didn't realize he was British. <laughs> exactly. And he goes, Joseph, my wife and I, Roma Downey, who, she's also an actor and producer, God has really put, put in our hearts, we've been trying to help Christians in Syria and Iraq, but we can't just help them financially when we now just watched ISIS just took over Iraq's second largest city, Mosul, and they're being driven out, they're being annihilated. So what do you mean? I mean, we knew about the persecution of Christians, so what do you want to do? He said, we need to try to rescue some of these people. And just to give you an idea, I know, I know as church, you hear about the persecuted church, you pray for the persecuted church. But once again, because these statistics are staggering, and you'll see them again later on in a slide uh, that we put together. Iraq had 1.1 million Christians. When the United States started getting involved, and today there's less than 190,000 remaining. North of Damascus, there was a city called Malula. In Malula, they speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus. They've been there since the first century. About 20,000 people no longer exist. It was there 2013. It no longer exists. What was happening at that time while the world is, 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 is watching ISIS and the migration crisis that's going on in Europe? Christians were being wiped out. They were facing genocide. So he said, we need to, we need to put something together. So how, what, what do we do? Do you have a plan? He says, no, we're looking to you to come up with a plan. It's like, great. Um, so Michelle and I very quickly Try to put together a plan on how do we rescue people? What are the logistics of this? The politics of that? Three and a half million refugees, migrants just marching through Europe. No one wants to take any more refugees. Wrong time to bring up the word refugee. We needed to do something. We couldn't stand by. And then who do you help? Do you help some and not others? Does that mean that we do nothing? <laughs> That's not acceptable either. So Mark and Roma tried with, with several countries. We knocked on doors of about a dozen countries, or even more than that, and nobody would take uh, Christian refugees. We had to find somebody that we can help, a community that we can vet, because the biggest scare right now is everybody's worried about the security. Are we bringing in terrorists? Are, we bring, are these people being vetted? You hear a lot about vetting in the media. So we found a Chaldean priest that happened to be in Washington talking about the persecution of his people. We flew immediately to Washington, met with him. His name is Father Douglas Elbazi. And the man has an incredible story that he himself, and you will see a little bit of Father Douglas in a short video that we'll show you here in a second. In 2007, while Michelle and I were serving in Baghdad for the CIA in the Green Zone, right outside the Green Zone, we actually heard it. A church was bombed by Al-Qaeda, killed many people, and Father Douglas was taken hostage. They took a hammer and broke every tooth he had. Every bone in his back, they broke it, trying to get him to recant his faith and to 
become a Muslim. He refused. They wouldn't give him anything to drink. And then they set a bottle of water in front of him and said, if you'll say the Shahada to become a Muslim, you can have this water. And so every morning he woke up thinking how much more torture he was going to endure before he was finally killed because he would not recant. He would not become Muslim. So we want to show you the short video and then we'll tell you how it ended up. This is what we need to go, I think. As Joseph and Michelle Assad work their way across the globe, their minds are focused on their destination. All right, we gotta catch our flight. The northern Iraqi city of Erbil, where the ancient citadel and bustling central market sit amid a forest of half-built high-rises. The streets, for the most part, are peaceful. But a savage war is just on the horizon. The city is unmistakably Muslim. But drive into the district of Ankawa and you pass a statue of the Virgin Mary. You enter an area Christians have been calling home for 1,000 years. We enter the grounds of a modest church called Mar Aliyah to meet Father Douglas Bazi. For years, he has been here reading the gospel written in Aramaic, the language of Iraqi Christians and the original language of Jesus. The countdown has begun for a journey that will rescue 149 people from the cramped containers that have been their haven from the tyranny of ISIS. As they walk through the gates of the Mar Aliyah Church, this is the future the Assads are fighting to protect. Every single person that we have interviewed, they've said, this is not about us. We want to leave here for our children so they can have a future. But the shadow of ISIS still looms large in their lives. What are you afraid of about ISIS? asks Father Douglas. Everything, Father Douglas. I'm even afraid of their name. But help for these girls and their families is soon to come from an unexpected source. Both their plight and their piety have drawn the attention of Christian advocates around the world. The plan, a charter plane to fly the refugees from Erbil to the Slovakian city of Košice, house them in this reception center temporarily, and then settle them permanently in the city of Nitra. The mission to save these refugees had just gotten underway when terrorist attacks in Paris set off anti-immigrant paranoia around the world. The French president has called it an act of war by ISIS. A multi-country manhunt intensifies. In the end, Slovakia agreed to provide safe harbor, but to prevent terrorists from slipping past their borders, the Assad's experts in counterterrorism begin an intensive security investigation of every member of every family. Why do you want to leave Iraq? And we ask for everything about them and their families, their former jobs, whether they've ever worked for military or intelligence before. I have here citizenship certificates. Of the 560 refugees sheltering at Father Douglas's church, 149 cleared the security check for Group 1. So you're 100% confident that you're not rescuing 
anybody who could be a terrorist. Very confident of that, yes. The facade has just been given a suitcase full of hope. This is incredible. This is, this is everybody's passport right here. I'll show you an example. This is passport of one of the young girls with the national visa to Slovakia. It is, uh, it's becoming a reality. Everything seems to be going according to plan. But Joseph is about to get disturbing news about the airport as Russia prepares to fire missiles on ISIS targets. Security incident. We assume that that's the same thing. Excuse me, I have to get this phone call. We have been told that the airport's going to be shut down. We haven't been given a reason why. In December um, 2015, after we were shut down by the um, Russian cruise missiles that you saw, um, and by the grace of God, 149 Christians were airlifted from Iraq, and they are now in Slovakia. What the point of all of this is that God used what was unique about Joseph and me to accomplish something. The skill set that we developed after 10 years in the agency that helped us to understand how to carry out complex operations in difficult places. Native level Arabic, knowledge of Arab culture, diplomacy, how to work a bureaucracy, how to help Slovakia work its bureaucracy, how to put together a massive project like this would not have been possible had we not spent 10 years in very difficult places. Um, the ability to vet people and information and ensure we weren't going to bring anybody into this country that could pose a threat. The whole point of this is that God wants what's unique about every single person in this room to use that for his glory. There's nothing about you that is an accident. There's nothing about you that is insignificant. Each one of us brings something critical to the table that God needs to make an impact in this world. And one of the, the most important things, if you walk away with nothing else today, that has been really the, the theme of our life is trusting God with the unknowns. The extent to which you can trust God with the unknowns is the extent to which he can use you to make a difference. I'm going to say that one more time because it is so critical. The extent to which you can trust God with the unknowns in your life, the moments when you are trapped in the well, the moments when you've reje been rejected a thousand times and you don't know why, and you have no earthly reason to hold on anymore, you have to have that faith because the extent to which you hold on to that is the extent to which he can use that in your future to make a difference, to help other people.